Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. The following program is being brought to you on the 7th Wave Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit 7thWaveNetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host, Peter Tung. This program will provide the groundwork you need to advance your awareness and be involved in the approaching transformation in consciousness. Now, your host, Peter Tung. Hello and welcome to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation and I'm your host, Peter Tung. Thank you for joining us today. The intention in these episodes is to give you insights into how the planet is shifting in frequency and vibration to a new level of awareness and how you can be part of this grand awakening. We've just shifted into Mercury retrograde this last couple of days and I've been having some interesting moments around that and I hope that we have a real good clear connection with Hugh Newman who is joining us from England for the show today. Hugh is an earth mysteries and esoteric science researcher who also organizes the Megalithomania conferences. Hugh, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Peter. It's absolute pleasure. So I'm always interested when we uh, have a guest on the show to hear a little bit about how their spiritual awakening happened as so many listeners are having that experience right now. So what happened to you? Oh my God. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think uh, that goes quite far back actually. I mean, obviously in my sort of late teens, early 20s, I was, uh, you know, as like most of us were, we were slightly hedonistic and we sort of partook in certain things. And that kind of amazingly helped me open up uh, to the possibilities of the world. Um, and I quickly sort of threw me into the spiritual path. And I think, um, but I've got, I've got to be honest with you, one of the things that really opened me up, I think more than anything um, from that was the sort of studying the, the crop circles. Um, and I was into the alien thing when I was younger. Um, and in the crop circle thing, and that really drew me into this whole other world of, of how to look at the world, basically, and the intricacies and amazing sort of signs you get with these crop circles. It really led me down like a mystical path, if you if, if you get my drift, and um, um, and that kind of opened me up. But there's many different you know different aspects um you know to the spiritual path really aren't there i mean since then obviously i've you know i've become i got really into you know meditation and, and something called subud and um and and sort of trained in many of the buddhist arts and uh that's been my path really um but i keep that's kind of just what i, I do you know quietly myself really and uh it's all the earth mysteries the ancient knowledge and all these indigo children all these fascinating things that are happening in the world that really inspire me at the moment and that's great, and that's going to be our discussion today. But let's just mention, uh, go back to the crop circles for a minute. What, what's your con- what conclusions have you come to about them? Conclusions about crop circles? That <laughs> is just not going to happen, I'm afraid. I mean, uh, this is what sort of makes me sort of laugh, if you, if you, if you, you know, with these crop circles, because the more you look into them, the more you explore them, the more you think you're getting your head rounding what creates them and who made them and this, that, and the other. 
that they just they just take another step of complexity away from you, um, and they stay one step ahead. And this is the the nature of the daemonic kind of reality that we're dealing with with the crop circles, and many of the other kind of mysteries that surround us as well are kind of have the same sort of elemental force, um, intelligence behind them. And so, yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, we'll get down to the the crunch. Do, do people make them? And yes, a lot of them nowadays, especially. Are made by people because it's become like this sort of you know multi-million pound business um it, it generates so much in wiltshire there's so much to it it's amazing um but you, what you've got to accept that some of them are definitely made by an unknown force uh they used to be called flying saucer nests that, that was their sort of original name then they became the corn circles crop circles and many other things but you know you can go back to the 1600s and and not far from where i live actually in hertfordshire there's reports of what's called the mowing devil um and this yeah. crop circle kind of appear with all this strange light and, and sound and, and weirdness um you know back in the 1600s so it goes a lot further back than we imagine it's supposed to be a mystery, isn't it? <laughs> we just have to play along with play along with the game. So let's talk exactly. about the the experience you had with the Indigo Children and how that all took place. Well, it's back in um, two thousand and three. I went over to the uh, Psychic Children Speak to the World conference organised by James Twyman and others. And uh, there's one of the, the children, or she was a you know, late teenager, really was uh, Grandmother Chandra. And oh, yes. she really inspired. She really inspired me, and I kind of connected with her and her, uh, her mother, and um, and did some ceremony with them around the time of the spring equinox that year, which is actually the same weekend that they started uh, the war in Iraq, which is quite bizarre that we were doing all this stuff on the other side of the planet, you know, opposing that really, balancing that out. And she's a very powerful woman, Grandmother Chandra. I mean, it's, I had a very profound experience uh, generally. Uh, and all the other people on the island who, who were involved with the conference seemed to as well. I actually just bumped into someone who was at that conference uh, recently at this festival I was just at, Green Gathering. So um, that brought up a few kind of interesting memories. And yeah. the, the, thing, the thing about Hawaii as well, which is obviously, you know, which the children are very connected with, is the, the all the dolphins and the whales and all that kind of energy that surrounds that island. And there was an abundance of dolphins there. When I, I mean, I went out for a swim, you know, just in the sea and managed to see like about 20 odd dolphins swimming all around me. Um, and so you, you, you know that, that when the, it seemed to be a lot of people were saying when the children, when the conference turned up in a way, all the dolphins and the whales turned up as well. Um, a sort of, uh, you know, it was like a sort of, they had their own conference in the sea, if you like. And what sort of conclusions have you come to in terms of, of the Indigo children and their role and why they're here and, and the challenges they have to face? Well, the Indigo children, I mean, it's, it's an absolutely fascinating subject. I mean, it's so fascinating. I did a whole book on it called The Psychic Children, Dolphins, DNA and the Planetary Grid. Um, and so, you know, that kind of, um, you know, there's so many different aspects. And it's obviously that conference that really kind of inspired me and got me thinking about it. Um, but yeah, I mean, the conclusions, I mean, the, the thing with this whole indigo child phenomenon is uh, it's been going on for quite longer than we think, probably. You know, it's been going on for like 20 or 30 years, really. The first indigo started coming in and then a diff different sort of natured type of children started coming through, but had all the same sort of psychic and amazing gifts associated with that. Um, and even up to the present day, there's kids who have been born with these amazing abilities. But I think what's interesting now is the fact that um, that a lot of these kids are getting into sort of places of sort of power, in, in, you know, hopefully in government and in society where they're kind of needed. 
I think this is what kind of um, is the most important aspect of this because obviously we know that society is a you know a complete mess, and so these kids starting to get into power um, is quite something. So um, you know, so hopefully we might start seeing changes subtly from the underneath, you know, from an unknown place. Uh, to, you know, the consciousness within these sort of uh, governmental-run things, the police force, the hospitals, whatever, is actually going to start to be influenced by people who have a much higher level of consciousness. I think this is what one of the things that gets me about these kids, is when you meet them and get to know them, you realise they have a, a sort of higher level of consciousness. And they, they, I mean, some of them don't even realise it. They just That's just the way it is, you know. Some of them, it kind of can go to the head a little bit and they can get a bit, you know, egotistical or whatever. Because they're young, they're kids, you know. I mean, you know, they haven't got, you know, grasp of everything in life yet. But you realise they have a knowing and a kind of understanding of the planet and of, of humanity that a lot of us, you know, a lot of my generation or older don't necessarily have. And we've had to sort of, train ourselves and get ourselves into that state to kind of reach that level whereas these kids often have it naturally so i'm just smiling here you because a good, one of my great friends who's who's 22 who's a wonderful young indigo guy just is just right now applying to be in the police force in the states and i okay. said to him what are you doing and he said i'm going to change the consciousness of the way they do things well there and you go yes classic isn't it eh? yeah well, it's happening isn't it it's happening yeah it's proof. fantastic so, so you obviously had this, this experience, and you mentioned the connection between the dolphins and the Earth energy grids. So just explain to our listeners that connection and how that led you onto this path of working with the energy grids. Well, this goes back to Hawaii again and this particular conference, because Hawaii is a real power point on the grid. That, that's, um, you know, it sits at 19.5 degrees um, above the equator um, and so it, that, that's a power point in itself because that's the point if you put a star tetrahedron or a Merkabah or a star a 3D star of David in the earth you know centered on the north and south pole the point one of the points where it touches is where Hawaii would be um, and so that you know that suggests that there's some kind of something going on there and this 19.5 degree thing is something that has come up on Mars with the Olympus Mons volcano on Mars, the largest in our solar system. And also, um, obviously, there's, you know, Hawaii is volcanic islands. And you get, you get different things happening throughout the solar system at that particular point. So that kind of intrigued me because I kind of learned that when I was there. I didn't know about that before. Um, and, and so, and then the grid, the kids, you know, the, especially Grandma Child kept going on about the grids and about how the, all the psychic children are aware of them. They could see them. They're, they commute, you know, these kids communicate with the dolphins and the whales and they kind of, you know, work with the grid and like sort of heal it and kind of send messages and energy and, and stuff around it. And this kind of really kind of got my, got my attention, if you like, um, and made me really think about this, you know, from that from that particular perspective. And so since then, I kind of got involved in kind of trying to understand that. Um, and that I was already into the, the earth mysteries, the ley lines, the crop circles and things like that. Um, so I kind of like put the two together and realized there was something very deep happening here that not only did these kids know about, but it's almost like, you know, the kids were picking up on the what the ancients knew about too, or these kids are reincarnations of, you know, the great masters from prehistory. Um, and they're just bringing this knowledge back. You know, there's many different ways to sort of approach this, but these are some of the ideas that I've been working with. Um, and it certainly does seem like that when you, cause you, you, like I say, you get to the, with these kids, the level of consciousness with some of them is so profound 
you think they must have been kind of, you know, Buddhist or you know, masters of some sort, you know, to have that kind of consciousness. Because they, they just seem to know, don't they? And when they speak about their own subject, they speak with such authority and knowing. You know, kids who have often struggled in the traditional school system, yet you start talking about ley lines and energy grids and they just, they just know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And I think this is, you know, you mentioned the school system. I think this is one of the reasons these kind of kids are, you know, here as well, because, you know, it's in my book I mentioned this, um, but this is kind of quite well known knowledge now. A lot of these kids are, are sort of are way beyond what's being taught in standard school education. Um, and they just can't deal with it. It's just, you know, to them it's just boring, it's rubbish, it's, it's just not interesting. Uh, they need something a bit more inspiring, a bit more creative. You know, I think the Steiner schools and, and other types of alternative schooling have kind of getting the, have got the idea. And they're recognizing, I think, now that there are these sort of gifted children sort of flourishing on the planet. It's like a whole new race, basically. <laughs> it's kind of, yeah, yeah. you know, what sort of some people call a root race. Um, you know, it's kind of fl- starting to flourish on the planet. And I think, you know, I think, you know, some of us, some of my generation could be indigo kids. I don't know. You know, I mean, I don't think there's a set time frame to this kind of thing. Because, you know, you go back to the, the, uh, the 14 or 1500s. And I, I know there's this prophecy of, of Mother Shipton. Um, back in England, you know, um, in, in Yorkshire, and also in East Anglia, where she originally lived. Now, she made all these rhyming prophecies. Um, not only did she mention, like, you know, the indigo kids in her prophecies, not necessarily under that name, but she was one herself. Um, she had all these gifts and abilities from an extremely early age and, and knew a, a golden age would come uh, when, when lots and lots more of these kids have this kind of energy or have this kind of power, then, you know, that's when things will definitely change. So, I mean, there's actually, you know, I can just recall it, actually. This is actually from uh, 1530 AD, the prophecy of Mother Ships, and it goes like this. The children with the second sight are natural things so that they might grow graceful, humble, and when they do, the golden age will start anew. And that's from, like, 1530, this, wow. this rhyming prophecy. It's, just, it's one of, you know, it's, it's a huge kind of rhyming prophecy. This is one little segment of it. So, you know, so you just see within that how interesting that is. The first part of it, the children with the second sight, that's obviously, you know, indigo, kids, psychic abilities, telekinesis, whatever. And natural things, so they're saying it's natural, so that they might grow graceful, humble, and when they do. So it's saying, well, when they, you know, to me it says when they accept their abilities, um, and actually work with these energies rather than use it just for their advantage or whatever, then the golden age will start anew. And so, to me, that's a kind of fascinating little prophecy that I kind of uncovered when I was writing my book. Um, there's, there's other parts to it as well, which mention like these great silver light ships appearing and things like that as well, which uh, I don't have in front of me at the moment, all the details of that, but um, it's fascinating nonetheless. Certainly is, and here we're actually uh, coming up to our first break, so we'll take a break now, and when we return, we'll talk about the huge topic of the grids, ley lines, and the megalithic structures. It's Peter Tongue for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. Be Extraordinary. Seventh Wave Network. Do you want to reach your highest potential in your personal and business life? Come and join our heart-centered community with Peter Tung and Sherry Chase. Embrace love, abundance, integrity, and personal empowerment in a safe and sacred space for your awakening. 
Our intention is to lay the groundwork for you to advance your awareness efficiently, to be fully involved in the conscious co-creation of peace and prosperity on our beautiful planet. Go to MyHeartCenterJourney.com for more information. The new home for visionary positive change. 7th Wave Network. Listening to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with Peter Tong. If you have a question for Peter or comment on this series, please send an email to descendingdove at gmail.com. That's descendingdove at gmail.com. Now back to our program. Welcome back to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host, Peter Tung. Just want to direct you to my own website, www.petertung.com and also to www.myheartcenteredjourney.com where we have the Ambassadors of Light program and we actually have a class this week on Thursday at 5.30 where I will be talking about the Landscape Zodiac Workshop which is taking place this Sunday, August the 7th in the heart of Leo and we actually have a connection, Hugh, through this because Catherine Maltwood who discovered the Glastonbury Zodiac moved directly to uh, Victoria from uh, living in the southwest of England and, and the home in which she lived is actually the heart of uh, the Leo the lion in the landscape and we're actually going to be in her house for a couple of hours on Sunday afternoon connecting energetically with her and the energy of the heart of the lion is going to be a, a fantastic day and Hugh you're, you're also connected to the landscape zodiac work in Glastonbury aren't you not? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I lived um, on the tail of the dog, the, um, the girt dog of Langport. Uh, <laughs> the girt- and there's an extra, oh. Yeah, there's an extra it- sign, um, you know, um, in, in yeah. sort of the, some of the British zodiacs, and uh, um, and it was actually a wag drove where we, where we lived. Funnily yeah, enough. I've been to wag. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, the whole obviously people don't know this, but there's a whole you know twelve mile wide landscape zodiac carved by. Roads, earthworks, streams, tracks, everything all around Glastonbury. But there's actually there's three not far from where I live in East Anglia, funnily enough. Um, you know, so there, there's about, you know, and there's a guy called Anthony Thorley. I don't, I don't know if he's been on your show yet, but he's, he has uh, actually, yeah. Yeah, he's doing he, a, yeah. He's doing like a PhD in landscape zodiacs, a sacred yeah. space, and he reckons he's discovered over 60 in Britain alone. So wow. it seems like it was something that the ancients got up to. And how does it tie in with the uh, ley lines and the earth grids? Yeah, it's interesting that one because uh, if you're telling me there's now one in is it Canada? Yeah, Victoria, BC. Yeah, yeah. Victoria, BC. So, well, I mean, I, I never knew that that kind of thing was happening up there. So, I'd be interested in getting the coordinates of that and sort of plotting it against the others and see what we come up with. Oh, that'd be great. Uh, be- yeah, because um, yeah, it does fit in. It seems like the same people who are building the megalithic sites. Um, you know, and all the different ancient mounds and earthworks and things like that, and the pyramids. They were, they did seem to be like the same era as uh, the landscape zodiacs. I think with the the landscape zodiacs, it was a more of a subtle kind of thing that they subtly, deliberately did that so it would stay there and it would last over millennia, which it has, um, uh, to maintain a kind of level of consciousness in the landscape, like like what John Michelle would call enchanting the landscape. Um, and where it, just by it's just just the fact that it's there, you might not even know it's there your whole life when you live on it, you know, but it's there and it's creating this energy 
form, this field, you know, across the landscape, which which wouldn't have effect on our consciousness, I believe. Um, and so I think they were kind of like connecting with the star energy the, and the sort of the cosmic, you know, the sort of constellations and the astro- astrological energy as well. So, yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot to it, I think. And uh, I think maybe the megaliths were certainly kind of linked up with that. And certainly, when you know when you know there's one and you're working consciously with it. The uh, synchronicities, which Anthony Thorley would talk about, the synchronicities become absolutely ridiculous. And you start having all these incredible things happening, uh, which has been for us, it's all been about the lion in the last two weeks. It's been just quite remarkable. Okay, okay. That makes yeah. a lot of sense. Uh, I mean, there's also one of the things in the Glastonbury Zodiac, which is, I'm sure Anthony must have mentioned this, is uh, the fact that they found like this 10-mile-long unicorn in the landscape, um, which is kind of just... And, and interestingly, the uh, the paw of the lion on Leo touched the hind of the unicorn and the unicorn actually goes through wag drove and kind of overlays the dog but where the lion's paw touched the hind of the unicorn is Somerton and this is the old royal town of Wessex old royal town of England where it's believed that the coat of arms which the British coat of arms had the lion and the unicorn on it was designed <laughs> and ah. uh, so there's all this you know so where the, you know, what came first really you know um, but you can actually see this unicorn surprisingly few people know about this you can actually see on uh, on road maps, you know clearly you, you open yeah, up your yeah. atlas and you can see you know a perfect shape of a unicorn, and it's aligned like east west you know perfectly. So it's very bizarre um, that these <laughs> things are now being discovered, rediscovered in the landscape. It's almost like um, you know it's the same I think with the pyramids and the megalithic sites. People are kind of as they're they're being rediscovered because we're we're getting to a, a, better, a higher level of consciousness. Um, and the ancients, you know, may have placed them there deliberately to kind of maintain this level of consciousness. And when we kind of come back to that level, we start seeing them again. Um, so I, I think that's, you know, po- possibly what's happening. I absolutely agree with you there, Hugh. I think it's just wonderful that we've, we've actually reached that point where we can start seeing things again. Yeah. <laughs> so give us a, a, a little bit of an overview, because obviously it's a huge topic, and we'll get into some detail in a minute. But the overview of how the earth grids and the ley lines and the megalithic structures how that all fits together just give us that that view off planet as it were first okay yeah i mean basically i mean there's, there's different ways to approach the grid um or the grids uh there's many different ways i mean obviously i cover it all in my book the earth grids book the little wooden book i've done but um yeah, I mean, the one I like, you know, I want to focus on first is really the energy side of it. And this sort of harks back to what we were talking about with uh, the star tetrahedron, like energy within the Earth, and where the points of that etherically kind of touch the surface. That's where power spots are. That's where things kind of happen. But this applies to all the different geometries, the, the platonic solids, the five platonic solids, but also some of the Archimedean solids as well. I mean, you know, this is more visual, so I, I won't really go into it too much here, but if people just know the different platonic solids, they'll know what I'm talking about. And that where the points or vertices touch the surface of the Earth, it seems to be where um, things happen where energy, you know, like civilizations occur or ancient sites are, uh, or strange phenomenon happens. I mean, just to give you an example, in uh, back in the early 70s, Ivan Sanderson, who was like a paranormal researcher and a biologist, he was doing some research on the Bermuda Triangle and, and trying to fit together this idea that maybe these these strange occurrences, gravitational anomalies, etc., occur at different parts around the world, not just on the Bermuda Triangle. So he did a bit. He did a huge amount of analysis on this, uh, and realised there were like twelve, what he called twelve devil's graveyards around the world. That's like an article he published, including the North and South Pole. But when plotted on a map, he 
quickly you realize it's all the points of the icosahedron which is a 20 20 triangular faces over the over the planet and where the points touch the surface of those is where um is where these particular spots are, like Bermuda, the Bermuda Triangle being one of them. And so that immediately showed a planetary grid at work, like an energetic grid at work. That it was actually had evidence on the surface to back it up. And this, this is then developed by these three Russian scientists and then by Beth Hagen's William Becker. Beth is actually going to be joining us in uh, Connecticut, in Glastonbury, Connecticut, uh, for our conference over there in October um, and discussing the latest on this. So I'm quite excited. I've never met her, so I'm, I'm really excited to go and meet her because she's one of the originators of the grid theory uh, and really put it put it out on the, out to the world in, in a really profound way um and so that's so that's there's one way of looking at it but there's other ways to do with like like you mentioned ley lines which are kind of straight line alignments over distances originally back in the 20s when they were discovered by alfred watkins they were just a could just be a couple of miles long with four or five sites on them like churches hilltops stones uh mounds and things like that now they see there's ones that go all the way around the world and um these great earth circles they're called like a hoop that join back up like an ouroboros um and there's hundreds of sites sometimes that are attached to these um and so these kind of fit into the grid theory quite neatly and uh i kind of go into all this in my book and dvds about this and try and sort of explain what goes where and what sites are joined to others and uh etc etc and um there's a, it's, a, it's a big subject but I managed to cram it into a very small book. <laughs> so let's uh, let's just talk about um, one of those lines, the Michael Mary line, which is probably the best known line in, uh, that moves across England. But but of what you're saying then is that line almost certainly extends outside uh, just the UK. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, if you go sort of north northeast from the UK, it extends. Uh, well, Hamish Miller actually. <clears throat> continued it dowsing it in St. Petersburg in Russia. But it goes the, the other way as well. If you carry on past Cornwall, it goes all the way around the world. And it's what's called the Rainbow Serpent, which is a, a visionary idea by this guy called Robert Kuhn. Um, and it goes all across the Atlantic Ocean, through the Azores, um, through Brazil, and then into Peru and Bolivia. And she meets this other great energy serpent, this energy lion called the Plume Serpent. And they meet actually at Lake Titicaca in Peru-Bolivia border. And the island of the sun. Um, I actually went there a few years ago and I managed to douse these particular lines. And she found where they met, and they met right at this megalith, this sort of sitting like this little dolmen, and also this great frog effigy, which I found quite odd, um, which people can sort of see in um, in one of the DVDs, the Stone Age Survival DVD that I've done. I'll do a whole analysis of this, uh, and it continues all the way around the world, goes through um, Australia, Air, uh, Uluru, Ayers Rock. Up through Indonesia, uh, Mount Kailash in Tibet, back through uh, back through Russia and Moscow and St. Petersburg and back to England. So that's the main rainbow serpent alignment, um, which is definitely worth checking out. I mean, I've been to as many sites as I possibly can on it. But there's this other great serpent line as well, like a hoop that goes around the planet, which is called the Plume Serpent. Like I said, it meets the uh, rainbow serpent at Lake Titicaca, but it goes up through the Americas, um, up through Peru um, and sort of into Mexico and up into North America. And I've tracked it through Mexico when I went to see all the Olmec and um, Mayan sites there last year and definitely found exactly where it went. And I was really kind of blown away by this. And there's all these legends you get around these, these South America, Central American areas about the plumed serpent, about these kind of energy uh, or about these feathered beings that 
had all this knowledge and sophistication, Viracocha in South America and Quetzalcoatl in North, uh, Central America. Um, so there's a lot of legends seem to connect up with these global energy currents, which is something we're going to be exploring when we uh, are actually in Peru in, in November for a tour we're doing there with, uh, with one of the best guys on it, really, is David Hatch Childress and Brian Forrester, who you've you, you got coming on your show, I believe. So. Yeah. Yes, uh, Brian's on next week. So the the Rainbow Serpent line, that is for clarification, is the same as the Michael Mary line, local in England. That's that's yeah. the, the great circle it creates. And yeah, what happens? What, what happens where they meet? When when the Plume Serpent, the Rainbow Serpent lines come together? What's the specific uh, energy or connection there? What happens there? Yeah. Well, this is interesting. I mean, I went. I've been to one of the places where they meet. There's two, there's another place um, in in Bali as well, which I need to go to, really, and ch- check it out. But when they meet in Lake Titicaca, it's, it's on the north part of the island of the sun. Because the, the Michael and Mary line, are kind of, it's, it's a bit confusing to try and explain it on an audio radio kind of thing, but the, Ma- the Michael line is like a straight line alignment, like a ley line. And then you get these two energy currents weaving around it, the Michael and Mary lines, energy lines, like a caduceus around a straight sword as such. So when, they, when that reaches South America, Lake Titicaca, you have the straight line alignment going straight through the middle of the island. And then you have these two energy lines weaving around it. And on the island of the sun, the north part of the island has the Michael energy line and the south part of the island has the Mary energy line. So on the north part of the island I really vibed with and checked out and that's where it crossed the plume serpent. And up there you've got this great frog effigy which is kind of like this natural rock formation. Uh, but the line goes right through it. But the line also comes through this big square megalith like a beautifully cut piece of like Peruvian ancient stone sitting upon these four smaller stones with a load of these stone seats around it. Like it's like a little ceremonial center. Uh, it's almost like the omphalos really. It's the, uh, the center of the world, I think in the Inca or pre-Inca tradition. Um, and this is that particular spot. And I, I'm, I'm really excited to be going back there, to be honest with you in November, because, um, I really interested to take a whole group there and see what happens and see if we can pick up any energies. We're actually going to be there on the 11, 11, 11 thing as well. Um, just to make it as cosmic as possible. Um, and, and to check out, you know, see if we can sort of pick up any energies there. Cause I know some other people who've been there said there's some profound things happening there and i picked up a great vortex of energy where they met um, but i was kind of on my own i was in a hurry and i kind of I, I had a few hours on the island back in uh, 2007 um so yeah i'm really interested in that and uh, i'm excited to be going back there really especially because sure, uh, brian yeah. and brian yeah. and david hatch children will be there too but. And, and I may be there too as well, Hugh. I'm, I'm being Fantastic. enticed at the moment. <laughs> Fantastic. Anyway, it's better. <laughs> yeah. So we're getting up to our next break, and so we'll, we'll take that break now, and we'll return and talk more about the, these energy grids and particularly the megalithic structures. This is Peter Tung for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. to the threshold of a dream and beyond. 7th Wave Network. Do you want to reach your highest potential in your personal and business life? Come and join our heart-centered community with Peter Tung and Sherry Chase. Embrace love, abundance, integrity, and personal empowerment in a safe and sacred space for your awakening. Our intention is to lay the groundwork for you to advance your awareness efficiently, to be fully involved in the conscious co-creation of peace and prosperity on our beautiful planet. Go to MyHeartCenteredJourney.com for more information. 
Listening on a higher dimension. Seventh Wave Network. Listening to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with Peter Tong. If you have a question for Peter or comment on this series, please send an email to descendingdove at gmail.com. That's descendingdove at gmail.com. Now back to our program. Welcome back to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host, Peter Tong. I'm with me today, Hugh Newman, who's given us a really interesting background on the Earth grids, ley lines, and megalithic structures. And Hugh, you mentioned earlier you've got a couple of uh, major trips coming up. So let our listeners know, first of all, how they can connect with you through your websites. And also, perhaps just talk a little bit about the two major events you've got coming up uh, in, later on this year. Sure, thanks. Uh, yeah, the, the, well, the website, if people want to check out the Psychic Children stuff, it's just www.psychicchildren.co.uk. They can... I've got some basic stuff on there people can have a look at, or if they want to get the book, they can order it there as well, and they can download it as well, just for a few pounds. Um, there's megalithomania.co.uk. It's megalithomania.co.uk. That's our main website. We have an annual conference in Glastonbury in South Africa every year, and we're just starting to do one in uh, Glastonbury, Connecticut, funnily enough, um, with our friend Jason Matozo, who's helping us organize it over there. And we've got some amazing people coming to that on the 21st and the 23rd of October, um, like Freddie Silver, Beth Hargens, who I've already mentioned, John Major Jenkins, Glenn and Cameron Broughton, and many others. I mean, you can check out, we've got a specific website for that if people are interested. It's uh, megalithamerica.com. It's all one word, megalithamerica.com. Um, and all the info's on there. People can, you know, check out if they want to come. We're going to be li- live streaming it as well if people can't make it so people can watch it online. Um, and, uh, yeah, and then we're doing a big thing in Peru and Bolivia with Brian Forrester, who you've got next week, and uh, the legendary David Hatch Childress, author of about 50 books, who's a um, brilliant guy on all these subjects. And David and Brian have got this book coming out about the elongated skulls. So we're going to be on the tour. We're going to be visiting many of them. That goes from the 10th to the 20th of November with a four-day extension into Nazca as well if people want to um, stay on for a few days with us a lot. And um, I'm personally going to be staying on for quite a lot longer. I'm going to Ecuador and Colombia and some other places to check out some sites. So if there are any intrepid megalithomaniac antiquarians who might want to come for the ride, then get in touch. Um, but yeah, that's all on megalithomania.co.uk if people want to find out more about these trips. And um, it would be great to meet people there. Fantastic. Thank you. So let's uh, continue the discussion and talk a little bit about the, the megalithic structures that have been built clearly deliberately on these uh, ley line energy grids and why they're there and what, how they were built and, and what they do. God, that's a big question. Uh, <laughs> my goodness. Okay, I mean, let, let's start. Let's just start with the sort of uh, in England, say, yeah. Um, yeah, sure. Yeah. You, you, you've got like places like Avebury, uh, which is like the biggest stone circle on the planet. It's so big. I mean, it's got two smaller stone circles inside it, 
that look quite small. But each one of the stone circles inside it is slightly bigger than Stonehenge. It's that big. Um, and, and has these great serpent arms coming out of it. And we're talking hundreds, if not a thousand massive megalithic stones making up this incredible structure stretching across the landscape like a great serpent. And, um, you have to question the first question that comes to mind. How on earth did they do that? Especially as it was supposed to be built over 5,000 years ago. Um, and then you've got to ask, well, why do it? Uh, you know, and the, what, what is the purpose of this? What, what on earth could it be used for? Um, and there's, again, this gets into like the, the, the realm of crop circles, really. There's so many theories about what they could have been used for. But I think one of the, there's two that really grabbed me. Number one is the geodetic markers. They're like, they're like points across the globe between all the great pyramids around the world, megalithic sites, mound culture everywhere, and stone circles. They all seem to be like, the, the most major sites seem to be geodetic markers, and they all kind of link up into a kind of grid. Not necessarily the same grid we were talking about earlier, but a kind of grid, like a geodetic grid. Like a great survey was being carried out by these great people of antiquity. And then the other side of it is more like getting down into like the local geology and the energies um, and Avery again is a good example because there's gr you get the great Michael and Mary energy lines sweep through Avery um, and there's been some scientific tests done there for instance by John Burke who wrote the fantastic book Seed of Knowledge Stone of Plenty uh, with Kaj Halberg um, I highly recommend people get that if they're interested in more scientific take on these great earth energies and why these sites were built it's absolutely mind-blowing read um, and there seems to be like, once you start, you know, cause I'm, I'm like a dowser, like a geomant, so I kind of do, um, take the dowsing rods out. I mean, I've got a few little bits of equipment, like a, a magnetometer and things like that, which I take to, everywhere with me when I go to sites. And you can pick up these energies quite quickly if you're kind of tuned up, tuned up to it. And, um, I think learning to douse is an essential tool for anyone. However ridiculed it is by the academic, academic world, it's, it's definitely a useful tool. And, but now science, through thanks to people like John Burke, is actually backing up what the dowsers and the geomancers sort have of always said, that there are these amazing energies at these sites. And they've actually, you know, it's been proven now beyond doubt that you can't, you can't dismiss it anymore. And the interesting thing is, it's like uh, I mentioned with the zodiacs, the landscape zodiacs, these sites were built to last. It's almost like the energy they, they were dealing with is like a permanent kind of like energy that's always moving through the earth. These telluric, energetic, magnetic, electric currents that are linked with the magnetic field, the sun and the geology uh, they're built on. And so whatever happens to humans, to any, anything, over hundreds of generations, these energies will still work if the sites are maintained and if they stay where they are, which is highly likely because they're so big. Um, I mean, you look at the pyramid. I mean, just, I mean, you'd be, try, try dismantling the Great Pyramid. It's, it's virtually impossible. Try, even moving the stones from Avebury was a tough job. For, what's his name? Stone Killer Robinson, I think his name was back in the 1800s. <laughs> uh, he tried to move some of them, blow them up, and actually, someone is still trapped under one of them from about 200 years ago. Funnily enough, um, poor guy. Uh, when they tried to move them, so so you get this whole thing that they, these were built to last. I think you know my, my two most interesting ones are the geodetic markers, and they also connect. That links in with the grids. That links in with ley lines because they're obviously on straight line alignments. Uh, many of these sites when you start looking at them on the maps um, and also the energies I think they're the things that really get me um, but there's obviously lots of different angles to approach this um, but just I'll just point out lastly about this is um, 
the energies we're talking about where the, that these now scientists start to pick up is like a fertility energy. It's like they, they realize when seeds were placed in these particular sites and then they were, they were planted, often they would get a much higher yield from the seeds they put within the sites where the energy was strongest and they would grow quicker and you get, you know, you get more than you needed so that they became like abundant, these cultures, these tribes or whatever. And they could actually trade with what they had left for other, you know, from other, with other people, the crops they were growing, which they had too many of. Uh, so that's, that's interesting in itself. But the fact is, the same energy we talk this fertility energy also has like an effect on consciousness. Uh, and this is something as well that John Burke went into in his book, and other researchers have noted this um, over the decades. And people who have had, you know, been to sites themselves have obviously noticed this as well. But often at certain times of day or year or, or, or whatever, you get a kind of surge of energy happens at these sites. Often where these orbs are photographed, um, this this will happen. Um, and it can almost like put you into an altered state of consciousness, um, you know. And so you have to wonder: was this like a shamanic tool as well that these sites were being built for, to actually like initiation purposes, like rites of passage, and to actually enhance consciousness? Um, so there's this side of it, you know, which is something that people like Paul Devereux and others have looked into, um, and that's definitely, I think, part of the purpose and design of these particular sites. That's a great. Uh, that's a great answer. Thanks, you. So, who were the uh, who were the great people behind this this clearly well defined, organised uh, setting up? Uh, that's another good question. Um, okay, so I mean, wh one of the things that I, I believe, which I you know, this is just my, my speculative ideas from research I've done and books I've read, is that there was a great culture who were based upon the serpent, um, and you know, you can go back. To different parts of the world and there was like these serpent cultures these sort of uh, who revered um the earth the land um they traveled widely they were very intelligent they're very smart they're obviously very spiritual they were looking out for future generations which is something that you know why these sites were built to last because they would provide fertility energy and etc for their offspring their future generations um and the legends you know all around the world you, this, you sort of keep get, keep getting clues from like sumeria from egypt mexico south america ireland and other places where these great serpent people seem to reside and seem to work and do their magic um they were often seen as very tall people they, they were very pale uh they had bl bright blue eyes and they kind of glowed with energy apparently and in Mexico, for instance, the legend of Quetzalcoatl or Cuckoo Clan, um, talk about him arriving on a raft of serpents, like a boat type thing. Um, so they obviously had sort of high technology as well. And if they can, you know, construct these megalithic temples, then they were certainly at a very high technology. So, so I think there's something in that. But who these people were is a real mystery to this day because they didn't really leave much in writing, especially in the, the British Isles. Um, there isn't much left to work with. Um, so all we're left with is the actual megaliths themselves. And there aren't really many clues in that until you start applying different, uh, different aspects to that, like archaeoastronomy, the earth energies, like I mentioned already, um, the ley lines, the geodetic markers, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then you start, clues start appearing um, out of them. And this is something that, obviously, this is why we do the Megalithomania conferences, is because we want to kind of open up the debate on this and actually question who our ancestors really were, because, you know, what we're told in school isn't necessarily correct. Even what we're told in universities, I don't believe, is necessarily correct. And we're missing a lot 
of the subtleties and cultural ideas and philosophies that they were working with. And this is something I believe needs to be addressed because it could have implications of how we approach life today. Absolutely. And do you have any insight into how they were actually built? Um, not really. I mean, that, that, that is, um, that's, that's, a, that's a bigger mystery than the crop circles, that one. <laughs> um, because the, the people have tried to make them, and they say that, yeah, we can make them using wooden rollers and pulleys and rope and things like that. But most attempts have failed miserably. I mean, the only guy who's really cracked being able to do sort of smaller megalithic sites is Rob Roy. He's a guy who lives up in northern New York State in West Chazzy. And I went to visit his his place and his garden is full of all these great big stones and megaliths. And he's, he's managed to do it through diligent engineering skills and hard work and using the old techniques. But still, it doesn't answer and explain many of the sites around the world to this day. Um, and so that that is that is one of the biggest mysteries. I mean, if anyone cracks that, it's going to be major because I think we're talking about free energy here. We're talking about kind of even the grid energy because a lot of a lot of talk about anti gravity with the world grid, something that David Hatch Childress and others and have been working on and in trying to understand. I think something to do with grid harmonics. Um, but no one's really kind of sussed that out yet. And I think you know whoever does is going to be a millionaire. <laughs> well, I had uh, Michael Tellinger on the show recently from South Africa, and he's definitely working on that idea of harmonics and sound frequencies and moving these yes. massive structures, yeah. We're coming up to our final break, Hugh, so uh, we'll take that now, and we'll return with Hugh Newman for the last segment. This is Peter Tongue for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. to the threshold of a dream and beyond. 7th Wave Network. Do you want to reach your highest potential in your personal and business life? Come and join our heart-centered community with Peter Tung and Sherry Chase. Embrace love, abundance, integrity, and personal empowerment in a safe and sacred space for your awakening. Our intention is to lay the groundwork for you to advance your awareness sufficiently to be fully involved in the conscious co-creation of peace and prosperity on our beautiful planet. Go to MyHeartCenteredJourney.com for more information. Be Extraordinary. 7th Wave Network. Listening to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with Peter Tong. If you have a question for Peter or comment on this series, please send an email to descendingdove at gmail.com. That's descendingdove at gmail.com. Now back to our program. Welcome back to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation, and I'm your host, Peter Tong. I have with me today Hugh Newman who is giving us a really interesting insight into the energy grids, ley lines, and megalithic structures. And I know, Hugh, that you've been doing some work uh, in the eastern United States, which is probably work a lot of people don't know much about. So just tell us about what you've, uh, you've discovered. Well, it's, it's all up in New England, really, uh, New York State as well. Um, 
I came over a few years ago to speak at the Earth Spirit Conference organized by Glenn and Cameron Broughton up in Vermont. And uh, I knew there were some sites up there, Calendar 1 and Calendar 2, and I kind of didn't know much about them you know, at the time, but I decided to do a little tour around them, just exploring with my friend Larry Bolan. And uh, we ended up um, just finding so many things, so many amazing ancient megalithic sites in America. Um, and then we connected up with the NERA group, the New England Antiquities Research Association, and they kind of showed us around further sites and held a conference. We went to that. And I was absolutely blown away by what there, what is in New England. Uh, hundreds of megalithic chambers, even stone circles and dolmens. There's this particular one in New York State. It's like an hour or so north of New York called Balanced Rock in North Salem. Um, and it's a, it's a massive megalithic dolmen. And it's, it's built right up on a magnetic anomaly. Uh, we photographed orbs there constantly. John Burke had done some tests there as well uh, and found that this was definitely a fertility site and a really powerful energy site. Um, and you get this all over New England, Connecticut, uh, Massachusetts, Rhode Island. You get the towers, you know, in Rhode Island and other places. And all the way up into Maine as well, you get sites as well. Um, and, and down in New Jersey. Um, so we explored many of the sites with people like Dan Budilian and others. Um, I really, I really connected with the landscape. They really felt a strong sense of ancientness um, going on there. But the problem is, this is you know, this is something that Nira, uh, the brilliant group who look after all these sites, come across is um, the fact that a lot of the sites now seem to be by the side of roads because of all these road widening schemes and construction, and all the archaeologists and academics just call them colonial root cellars, like they're like what you know, you know, the first settlers built to put their vegetables in uh, which is kind of absurd because they're not really going to be lugging about 25 ton blocks of stone uh, just to keep their potatoes dry um, <laughs> and so you know this is so this is the absurdity that Nira have to deal with all the time and a lot of these sites seem to get destroyed I really urge people to kind of contact Nira it's any ARA.org, NERA.org, and you can connect with them and they'll show you around the sites. And, you know, they're involved in our, one of the reasons we're doing the conference there actually in Glastonbury, Connecticut is because, because of all the sites in the vicinity there. And we really want to, and we, and NERA are assisting us and working with us on the, on the three tours we're doing. We're doing like three days of tours to these sites. So if people want to come along, they can, you know, come along with us or, you know, and, and join us for the conference and the tours and, or they can just contact Nera in their own time and they, you know, they'll be happy to show you around as well. Uh, and it's surprising what you find out there. Um, and it absolutely spikes that a lot of them just sort of like Irish and English megalithic sites. Um, and according, you know, according to the history of America, they're not there. You know, uh, you, you won't get them mentioned in school or universities in America, I doubt. Um, and, you, and you get the same issues, really, with the male culture, uh, right down the Mississippi from Ohio all the way down to the southern states and even into Florida as well. You get like 10,000 recorded earthworks and mounds, at least. Um, you know, massive ones like Cahokia and the, Serp the Great Serpent Mound, obviously, which is another suggestion of the serpent cultures. Um and we've got this guy called Ross Hamilton coming along. He's doing a talk um, at the Megalithomania in Connecticut in late October. And he's going to be discussing what's been dis originally discovered in these mounds. And amazingly, there's hundreds of reports of giant skeletons, um, which is kind of kind of surprised me. But he's written a whole book about it called The Tradition of Giants. 
which I came across when I was in America last time, and um, and it's mind blowing, really, what, what what some of the early letters and discoveries and newspaper reports said until the Smithsonian pretty much covered most of it up. Uh, but there seemed to be a race of giants living it down in the Midwest, even all the way over to New York State, where there's lots and lots of giant um, skeletons were found right on the western side of New York State. Not so much uh, in the more eastern areas, but definitely on the western side. Uh, and, and even all the way into California, there's, a, for example, there's a place called Lompoc in California, which I actually visited. And like an eight, uh, a 14 or 15 foot skeleton was discovered there early last century. I tried to go into the ranch where it was actually discovered, see if I could find any evidence of it when I was there a few years ago. And uh, it was all sort of private land, MO is like military property now and all this kind of stuff. So, so there's a huge and amazing landscape that America is. It's really, I mean, there's some, there are some people working on it, obviously, but, you know, from an English megalithomaniac's perspective, it's, it's wonderful to come over there and actually visit these, you know, you go to America and, and you really, unless you really do a bit of homework, you're not going to find out anything about these sites. But I went there and I was like having a field day. I was like, you know, every day I was exploring and look, finding things and checking out these ley lines and earth energies. And almost, you know, if you look, if you know where to look and you do a bit of research, there's an amazing lost landscape out there of, of very ancient sites. And I think that was as an, an important landscape as you know the uk or europe or south america for instance um and i really feel like this is again i think this is part of the americas maybe their the awakening there is to recognize the, the ancient traditions that are still there i mean the, obviously the native americans held on to these traditions and they pretty much got you know heavily suppressed etc but the energy is still there within the landscape the knowledge is still there and i'm sure it's there you know these sites are being rediscovered and requested in a way that people are questing the landscape again for for a reason um and so you know i just i'm excited to be part you know part of that to be putting on events over there and you know helping helping people become aware of that that's great, Hugh. Hugh, we're coming up to the end of the show in the next couple of minutes, so I just wanted to get your perspective, uh, all the work that you've done on the, the global shift in consciousness and how this all fits together with what you've been talking about today and where we're going next in the world. Yeah, well, I think, you know, as, as we talked about at the start of the show, I think these kids, uh, these indigo children and, and psychic children are certainly part of that. But I think, you know, obviously, you know, with the way that, you know, the how... There's a whole worldwide movement. It's like some people call it the New Age movement, or some people call it just more spiritual awareness. And I think there's certainly something going on. There's like a higher vibrational energy is starting to affect us all. I think this is pretty pretty obvious. And, and I think it's getting through to people because even if people can't feel it themselves, I mean, you know, you know, people who aren't aware of it, suddenly all their friends are getting into it. So it's spreading in, in lots of different ways. Um, and it is quite exciting to see this. And I think 2012, you know, December 21st, 2012 is the big deadline that we could use um, as that shift. And this is something, you know, that's obviously been talked about a lot over the last few years. And it's going to get very intense over the next, you know, 15 or 18 months um, as we approach that particular day. But I don't really see it as a cataclysmic, I think, um, cataclysmic event in 2012. I think it's more of a, a potential and uh, opportunity to actually do something with this kind of deadline, if you like. Maybe that's not the right word, but um, and one example is a project my friend Mark Healy's working on called Peace 2012. 
and you people can check out the website peace2012.net and what it is is um he's like you know building up all these different groups and you know indigenous elders and lots of different people who are all doing events on december the 21st 2012 to all link up all over the planet i'm sure lots of other groups are still doing this but i think the way it's being pulled together uh, in relationship with Earth Dance and these other groups, I think it's really important that people, you know, maybe use this day as an opportunity. You know, I'm not saying, you know, it's going to be, you know, it's not going to be like the film 2012 or anything, like one would hope. <laughs> I think uh, I think there's some other, other ways to approach this. So we've just got to get on it, really, and, uh, you know, wake ourselves up. That's a great finish uh, for the interview. Thanks so much, Hugh. You've given us a tremendous insight into a really, really important topic. I really appreciate your time with us today. Thanks so much. Thank you, Pete. It's been great to be on. Great. So my guest next week will actually be uh, Brian Forrester, who uh, works with Hugh Newman, lives in uh, Lima in Peru, and he'll be talking about the sacred sites of South America as well as the elongated skulls, which will be a really interesting discussion. Hope you've enjoyed today's show. Have a wonderful week. This is Peter Tung for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. you found this week's show to be enlightening and inspiring please join host peter tongue for another edition of awakening to conscious creation next wednesday at 3 p.m eastern time noon pacific time on seventh wave network